Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the chance to remember that every year is one year closer to your return. That is my prayer, Father. My prayer is that 2014 would be the year that we stand before you and that the church be lifted off this earth and that we have the, the hope that's been given to us realized in our inheritance and that we would stand with our brothers and sisters who've gone on before us and we would all glory in what has been given to us by faith. May this be that year, Father. May it all come to that glorious end this year. But if it's not your will, Father, that this is your year, if you still have more to do on this earth through us, then I pray, Father, we would use every day of this year to prepare ourselves for that moment, to become that servant that you wish we would be, that we would earn through our labors the statement that we all long to hear, that we have done well as a good and faithful servant. Let our days, Father, be counted with an understanding that they are fleeting. Let our choices be ones made with a sober understanding of how they will impact our reward. May our every opportunity to influence the lives of others be an opportunity to win a soul. May we have that on our hearts at all times. May our attendance and our participation and our engagement in this little church, Father, be our training ground so that we would be better prepared for whatever you send our way. And in all things, Father, let us turn to the word and to your spirit in us so that we may have the truth and we may live according to it as we will study it this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's turn to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 14. Today we're going to study part 3 of Paul's teaching on liberty and on its limits. As I've mentioned before, this topic runs three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And it began on a question of whether it was proper for a Christian to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. But in the course of answering that question, Paul has embarked on a much larger discussion of Christian liberty. First, in chapter 8, he taught that we must exercise our liberty with an eye toward loving our brother and sister in the Lord. And then secondly, in the first half of this chapter, Paul began to use himself as an example of how someone could forego their own liberty out of concern for others. And then finally, Paul began to defend his decision to forego financial support specifically against those who had been claiming that his unwillingness to accept support was proof that he wasn't actually an apostle after all. He argued that he still had the right to that support even though he had refused it. That's where we left off last week. And so in the interest of time, let's just dive right back in to verse 14 where we left off with Paul explaining his refusal to accept their financial support. In verse 14, he said, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel will get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. Now, that's where we stopped last week. Paul has made abundantly clear that those who proclaim the gospel have an expectation that they would receive their living from the gospel. The minister who's devoted to proclaiming the gospel to the proclaiming of the good news has every right to receive support from those who he ministers to, to those who he serves. And Jesus himself said this too. He said in Luke chapter 10, 
verse 7, when he was speaking to his own disciples, he said to them, stay in the house that receives you, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. So this is a basic principle that Paul reiterated when he taught this in chapter 9. And Paul and Barnabas, as laborers, had that right, and yet, as we see, they chose not to take advantage of it in Corinth. Paul says he used none of these things. You notice the word things is in the plural. What he's referring to is the donations, to the cumulative donations of support that had come to the church on behalf of him. He said, we chose to take none of them. Instead, he says, they chose to work for their living in their trade. Now, that is a meaningful and I think you would agree that's a commendable choice on Paul's part, because what Paul chose to do was take upon himself added burden that he did not have to take, but yet he chose to take on their behalf. And it's a great reminder to ministers. It's a convicting reminder for me as well that foregoing financial support is an option that we may take under certain circumstances when necessary, but we only do so when it is for the purpose of the course of the gospel. Not for self-piety, not for self-righteousness, but as a means to an end. But we also learned last week that the minister's choice in this matter has no bearing on our collective responsibility to support them. As Paul said, we're not to muzzle the ox that we depend on for our spiritual nourishment. So while the minister has some liberty here, the congregation always has an expectation of support. Now, in Paul's case, he made this decision for two reasons, and we didn't cover these reasons last week. So that's really where we pick up today in the course of the teaching. Paul alludes to one of those in this chapter. We have to go elsewhere to hear it in detail. And he explains the second reason in the balance of this chapter. So the first reason he gives for foregoing his personal liberty was to show love to the church by not putting additional financial burden upon them. And to find this most clearly, I actually leave this letter. I go to a next letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, the one we number 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a point in that chapter where Paul actually gets back on this horse and starts writing this issue again for a moment. In chapter 12, verses 11 through 14, here's what Paul says. I want to make sure you hear this. Listen to the sarcasm in his voice. Verse 11, he says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Oh, forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours. But you, for children, are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I love the way Paul concludes that. He says, children are not responsible to save up for their parents, parents for their children. Paul, being a parent spiritually to this church, said that he was responsible for ensuring their financial welfare, even as he was working out their spiritual needs. Sarcastically, he asked the church to forgive him for not placing a financial burden on them. Apparently, what had happened was his refusal to accept support had been interpreted by the church as an insult, as if Paul was treating them as inferior or poor compared to other churches. It's interesting how somebody can take a blessing and a burden and twist it in their own mind because of pride and turn it into a fault. And that's what they had done. Paul says, you should have perceived my choice 
to forego financial income from you. You should have perceived that as a blessing that I was offering to you out of my love for you, that I would not be a burden on you. That was Paul's first reason. But he doesn't really address that in the chapter we're studying in chapter 9. He doesn't go into it like he did in 2 Corinthians. No, instead, Paul focuses squarely on the second reason why he did not take their support. And that second reason to restrict his personal liberty in verse 15, he says it would be better for him to die than, he says, to lose his ability to boast about not taking support. Now, why was Paul so adamant? What is he getting at here? Why didn't he want support? The boast he's talking about is the claim that Paul served this church without material reward, that his service was done without any earthly gain. That was his boast. Had the church turned around now in the face of his criticism and said, oh, all right, Paul, if if it means that much to you, we'll start giving you money. That's why he says, I didn't say this for my own needs. I don't want you to turn around now and start giving me the money that I didn't get before. That's not my point. My point is, I want to be able to boast about this. And he's not talking about a boast to people, a boast to another human being. He's talking in a very specific spiritual sense. The boast of standing before Christ with something that is eligible for reward. Something that is eligible for reward. Look what he says next in verses 16 through 18. Paul explains his boast. He says, for if I preach the gospel... I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, then I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Well, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Well, these are powerful verses, powerful verses. Paul explains that merely preaching the gospel in Corinth could not be caused by itself for the Lord to reward him. Paul said he could not expect the Lord to reward him merely for spreading the gospel. Why? Because Paul says he was already under compulsion to do so. When the Lord appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and he arrested him with the light of his glory, And he called him into faith, asking, why do you persecute me? You remember, of course, the the scene in Acts 9. When he does that to Paul and he sends him off into Damascus and sends him to meet a man who has been appointed by God to, to tutor Paul and to help Paul understand what's just happened to him, these are the instructions Jesus gives to that man in Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to him, go, meaning go to Paul for me, go. For Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Did you notice there was no offer there? God never said, you know, Paul, I've got a plan. It involves you. If you'd like to join me, this is what you could do on my behalf. No, there's there's never a question asked of Paul except the first one. Why do you persecute me? After that, it's compulsion. It's I will, you must, this will happen. So Paul was under compulsion. He might have refused in the sense of a Jonah. You know, Jonah was given a task and Jonah said no. Didn't work out real well for him. He ended up exactly where God wanted him anyway and he went the hard way instead of the easy way. I think much of what 
we see in the story of Jonah would have repeated itself in one form or another had Paul, for whatever reason, decided not to do what God asked him to do. I don't think there was really any option in that sense. The only question for Paul or for any of us really is, do you do it the easy way or the hard way? So Paul was under compulsion. And that's why Paul says, woe to me if I didn't. I think that's what he means. I'd end up in a fish or something. (laughs) Woe to me if I don't do what I'm commanded to do in this case. So Paul says, how can I boast in what is already expected of me by default? It would be like an employee bragging to their boss about showing up for work every day or asking for a bonus because they happen to come on time regularly. Wouldn't the boss just turn to you and say, that's kind of kind of goes with the job. That's in fact, if you don't do that, you get fired. Right. It's not a bonus. Now, I want to point out that in my notes right now, I have a joke that I can't use, but I think it's even funnier that I can't use it because my next example was it'd be like Ken bragging about showing up for church every Sunday, but he's not here. So it's kind of worked out better than I expected. All right. So in verse 17, Paul says, if, on the other hand, I were preaching voluntarily, which is to say, if he had not been compelled in the way that he was. He says, well, then he might have reason to brag and he might have reason to expect a reward for having done so. But that's not his situation. Paul was arrested on the road against his will. He was assigned the mission of suffering. He was assigned the mission of self-sacrifice. He had no option. That's why he says in the verses we read that he is doing it against his will, so to speak. He doesn't mean that he doesn't want to do it. What he means is he didn't have a choice in it. And I can guarantee you that the Saul, the Saul who was breathing threats against the church, he didn't want to do this. Right. In that sense, it was very much against his will that he was put in this position. Now it's now it's what he wants. But the point's the same. Paul didn't ask for these things. And so Paul can't turn to God when he appears at his judgment seat and say, reward me for doing everything you told me to do. Well, Paul, that's what you were going to do anyway. It's not exactly a reward, is it? Paul says the Lord entrusted him. With a stewardship, it's a great word, really puts this into context. Stewards are caretakers. They have a responsibility to care for something that has already been done or already been created or already been made. Stewards don't produce. Stewards care for something someone else produced. Paul was made a steward of the gospel, of that message, which was nothing of his doing, right? He was just the caretaker of it for a time. Now, we don't want to diminish Paul. I mean, we all know the magnificence of what Paul did. And, and there's no taking anything away from that. I don't think Paul is trying to diminish what he did. What he is saying, though, is who gets the credit for it? The boast that Paul has as an apostle is not that he went throughout the known world preaching the gospel at great personal sacrifice. That was expected. The boast that Paul has is that he did it without charge when he had a right to expect that someone would support him. He had a right. He says he did not make use of. That is an opportunity for reward. That's going above and beyond the mission. In verse 18, Paul says his reward will come from his decision to preach the gospel at no charge. And in general, what we're saying is his reward is coming from his willingness to set aside personal liberty. And that's putting us back in the context of this discussion of liberty. He did so to show love to the brethren, and he did so in the hope of having greater reward through a more effective ministry. That's what he says next. Look in verse 19 through 23. 
He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more to the Jew. I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without law to the weak. I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. Paul starts by saying, I am free from all men. And what he means by free is that I have the same liberty all men, all women in the body of Christ have by virtue of our faith in Christ. We are free in the sense that we are free from the restrictions of the Mosaic law. We are free from the judgment of other men concerning our righteousness. That's why no one can judge us, because we've been set free by our faith. And more importantly, we don't make our daily lifestyle decisions on the basis of how those decisions might impact our position before the Lord. For our position before the Lord is settled once and forever by the blood of Christ spilled at the cross. There is no personal lifestyle decision that I can make that will either make me more righteous than I already am by faith alone, nor will any lifestyle decision detract from my righteousness, which is appropriated from Christ, is not based on my works. Follow me? That doesn't mean I can't sin. But my point is, I don't have to worry about lifestyle choices thinking that it has some impact on my salvation. I'm free from that worry. So now what guides my lifestyle decisions? If it's not how I get to heaven, if that's already been settled, then what does guide my decisions? Well, Paul makes some points concerning that. First of all, he says he assumed certain burdens in his life, certain restrictions voluntarily so that he could become effective as effective as possible in ministry. And he gives some examples. He says when he was ministering among Jewish people, he would voluntarily now, voluntarily assume a Jewish life. He would start to observe the Mosaic law or the dietary restrictions. He would come back into a lifestyle that he knew he was not compelled to keep, but voluntarily he chose it. Why? So that it would appease, it would placate the Jewish culture, the Jewish people. They would be more receptive of him, more willing to see him come into their presence, more willing to hear his message, more open to whatever he might preach. It made it more effective. You all remember Brian who's come here on so many occasions and talked to us. And for some of you who have not met him, his ministry is directed at Islam and in some very dangerous places in the Middle East where any Christian presence and certainly any prophetizing of any kind is going to get you into big trouble fast. So how does he work within that culture to become effective for the sake of the gospel? Well, he has found, through the help of others and his own research, he has found an effective way to preach the gospel out of the Koran. That in the Koran, there are places you can go if you know where to go, that bring to light Christ as Messiah, the sacrifice for our sins, the only Son of God. Why are those things in the Koran? Well, I can only imagine God has found a way to include them so that these things could be found and be useful. But the point is, he doesn't take a Bible into those countries, because if he'd even try, he'd be at risk of his life. And certainly they would prevent him from getting into the country. 
But he goes in with a Koran. He preaches the gospel out of a Koran. This is effectively the equivalent of what Paul is doing with Jews. Becoming like them to an extent, to the extent necessary, so that he might win them. But never forgetting he's Christian, of course. But just finding effective ways to appeal to them. Paul says he did the same thing around Gentiles, but in an opposite way. With the Gentiles, he would probably, and he doesn't say this here, but I think it's implied... In order to create a cultural connection with Gentiles, Paul probably found himself in some uncomfortable, perhaps even offensive situations, given his Jewish background, given his own cultural background. He probably had to agree to do some things that made him feel a bit uncomfortable. But he knew in his mind they were not affecting his righteousness. They were just cultural differences at this point. Yet he made those changes, here again, so that he could appeal to men who, if he had come with the Jewish set of restrictions, would never have had any interest in him. He became all things in that sense, whether strong, whether weak, whether Jew, whether Gentile, it made no difference to him. He says, what I need to be to get an audience with someone for the sake of the gospel, that's who I will be. Notice Paul makes clear that those choices he made were not requirements. They were voluntary for the sake of reward. He says he wasn't under the law of Moses, even when he chose to live like a Jew. It's not like he fell back into some state in which the law owned him. It was just a choice. But notice also, he says, when I was with Gentiles and I knew I didn't have to live under any of these restrictions. In fact, I I couldn't because it would offend them. Nevertheless, he says, I know that I wasn't without any law. I know that I wasn't without any restriction. He says, I always have the law of Christ guiding me, which is to say, I always have to be concerned with whether I'm pleasing God, with whether I'm sinning. But these things of what I eat or what I wear or who I can sit at a table with, those are not issues of sin anymore for us or for anyone who's come to faith. And so he can work within those things just fine if it helps him win anyone for the gospel. Now, he says he did these things. I want you to notice that the last verse I read, he says he's done these things so that after he preaches the gospel, he might become a partaker of it. And some people get a little confused about what does he mean that he can then become a partaker of the gospel well obviously we know paul is saved and he's saved by faith alone and i say that with confidence because almost everything we know about the issue of salvation paul himself wrote and he wrote consistently on this point right you are saved not by your works but by faith alone by grace through faith paul says so we know that our works in and of themselves do not create the righteousness that's required for heaven. No one can work their way there. So when Paul says, I became a partaker, he's speaking of it differently. In fact, the word partaker indicates to us he means someone who would receive the bounty of something. Not receive the substance of it, but the consequences of it. Paul is saying that after he has worked to bring the gospel into the hearts of other people so that they could benefit from it, It would be a shame if at the end of the day, he himself did not gain some reward out of that work. That's his point. And in doing what he's doing, by becoming all things, by putting his liberty second place to the needs of the gospel, he is earning reward. And in that sense, he is becoming a partaker in the rewards for those who serve Christ in the gospel. He wanted that. Now, if you study this example carefully, if we look at what Paul did carefully, will arrive at some very basic principles that are, I think, the point Paul's making. These principles are the point. The principles of how we are to set aside our own personal liberty with an eye toward our eternal reward. And this is the part of this chapter that I indicated earlier that I don't think people talk about enough. 
We understand loving others. I think we do anyway. We should. That if I offend you by my liberty, I want to make sure I'm controlling myself so that I don't offend you. So that I don't treat you with disrespect. I, I think that part's easy. But have you ever considered that how you restrict your personal liberty, how you enforce self-restraint has as a second consequence your eternal reward? That puts it in a whole new light, doesn't it? That means we have self-interest in this as much as we might be interested in someone else's needs. Here are the principles you see reflected in Paul's example. First, our attitude in life should be, how can I accommodate others through self-restraint? That should be our leaning. I think it's common today, and maybe this is particularly a Western Christian thing and not necessarily everywhere, but I think it is common in my experience to find Christians who only seem to be interested in showing off their liberties, in demonstrating that liberty is everywhere and I can do what I want and I I have no restriction and they love to exercise liberty to show that it exists. And maybe there's some merit in that in some cases. But Paul's example would suggest that we should have an opposite point of view most of the time, which is how do I exercise self-restraint? How do I not take advantage of my liberties as often as I might for reasons that are purposeful? Paul was always looking, he says, for ways to restrain his freedom, to become a Jew when he needed to, to become a Gentile when he needed to, to become weak when he needed to or whatever. So that should be our focus. How do I restrain myself? Not how do I live out my liberty to its utmost? Second principle, Paul restrained himself for very specific purposes related to the gospel. He was seeking to advance the purposes of the gospel in love. So whether he moved left or right or front or back or whatever he did, he made every lifestyle decision with an eye toward how it impacted his effectiveness in ministry. What that means to us is there will be times when the decision to restrict our liberty has no immediate or apparent impact on the gospel, but we should be careful and think through it and concern ourselves with whether or not there is some potential in our decisions on liberty to affect the gospel. Thirdly, Paul never placed any undue emphasis on certain rules. If liberty is at one end of a spectrum, then certainly legalism is at the other end. And what Paul demonstrated here is that though he might move himself voluntarily down toward the end of rule keeping, at least in a certain circumstance here and again, he didn't stay down here. When there was a need to be liberal in the face of Gentiles, he would quickly move to the liberty side if that was necessary to win them for the gospel. He didn't live on just one end of this spectrum. Yet I know that there are those in the church today who feel that by constantly and perpetually restricting their own liberties, they're somehow advancing the purpose of the gospel. We've probably all seen examples of churches like this where all the women wear certain dresses and all the people have to wear their hair certain ways and all of the rules of some kind of system of legalism comes into view and their mentality is, well, we're showing restraint in a way that should help us advance the gospel. Well, think about it. Do they look weird to our culture or do they look inviting? For the most part, they look strange. And that's not to the purpose of the gospel anymore. Now you're just being different for the sake of being different. And it becomes a new kind of piousness, self-righteousness, and legalism. And it's actually contrary to the purpose of the gospel in that respect. Now, there are times when that behavior might be very helpful. But there's a lot of times when it's not. If we're willing to move on one end, we've got to be willing to move to the other as necessary, apart from sinning, of course, so that we can be effective. Any self-restraint that is not directed to advancing the gospel is nothing more than self-righteousness. 
Do what you do for eternal purposes. And then lastly, the fourth principle. We can see how Paul used his self-sacrifice as an opportunity for the Lord to bless him. He wasn't the only man living under compulsion. We all live under compulsion to some degree. We all have obligations. And we must all fulfill those obligations as a matter of duty. If you and I merely do what is already commanded of us out of Scripture, we should not arrive at our judgment seat one day and expect a big reward for that. I mean, when you decide to do something voluntarily in your life, to lead something, to serve in some way, to go after something, to change your life in a sense so that you can serve Christ, then you have an expectation of reward in that. But we cannot think that just because we come to church regularly or semi-regularly or because we say our prayers at night or because we stay out of trouble most of the time, because we give money to the church, etc., that those things in and of themselves are the source of our eternal reward. Those are the things you're expected to do. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Because we're commanded already to do those things. Paul says reward comes from voluntary service, something you're not required to do, but you take it upon yourself anyway. And Paul ends this chapter on that topic. As we finish today, look at verses 24 through 27. He wraps this idea up of restraint on liberty for the sake of love and the sake of reward. He ends it on the topic of personal reward. Look what he says in verses 24 through 27. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. Everyone who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, this is the second time in the letter Going back to chapter 3, this is the second time in the letter that Paul has turned a church question or an issue to the topic of personal reward. Have you noticed that? Chapter 3, we talked about the fire and coming through the fire either with gold and precious stones or hay and straw. Remember that chapter, right? And there Paul was directing their attention away from boasting to the issue of being ready for God to judge you, not men to compare each other to men. And here again, they ask him about meat sacrificed to idols. And in a very short time, Paul's turned that to a conversation once again about a reward for our efforts. Do you think maybe in the church today we're underemphasizing the importance of concerning ourselves with our eternal reward with pleasing the Lord? And we're overemphasizing just having fire insurance getting in, so to speak. That's my sense anyway, because I don't hear enough people talking about this, but Paul can't get off the topic because it's that important to him. Paul uses an analogy here, one of sports, of course, of a sports competition. He's using it to explain to the church in Corinth why every Christian has good self-interest in exercising self-control and exercising restraint on liberty. Paul says we are all running a great foot race in the life we lead while waiting to reach Christ. And our Christian walk of life is this race, to mix my metaphors, And every Christian is running it, he says. We're all in this race by default. You come to faith, you become a disciple of Christ by faith, you've just been placed on one of those lanes in this race. Paul's making the comparison, as you might already know, to the ancient games of Greece. Our Olympics today is based on the ancient Greek games. And in Paul's day, they weren't ancient. They were the games. They were the Olympics of his day. And those games are not 
necessarily just like the ones we have today. For example, all the men who participated had to participate in the nude. It's a big difference from the way we do it today, thankfully. And another difference between the games of ancient Greece and the games we practice today is in ancient Greece, there was no second place. There was no silver and bronze. You know, what was the second place guy? He was a loser. Right. He was just he was just the closest loser. That's all it was to them. You either got the first prize or you got no prize. They didn't reward honorable mentions and things like that. And so when Paul commends the church to run the race in such a way that they will win, he's talking about coming first of getting the prize. His point is we're all running, but that doesn't mean we all get a prize. It's not just for entry that you get a prize. Now, as we continue to understand this analogy, we need to also understand there are some similarities, but differences as well between this analogy and the application that Paul is making. So I don't want to leave you with some misunderstandings. For example, in the Greek games, an athlete competed against other athletes for that one prize, right? But in Christian life, we are not competing one against another for some prize. That's not the way you would apply this analogy. What we are competing against is our own opportunities, In a sense, we're racing against ourselves in light of the opportunities God will make available to us. Paul explains that our opportunities to earn reward have been prepared by the Lord beforehand. And so now the only question is, how many of those opportunities are we going to take advantage of? Paul says that in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So it's like an a la carte. God just brings the cart by the table and says, here's all the good works I have prepared for you. Do them and be rewarded. Some of us choose one or a few or some of us choose none. Some of us choose a lot. It's a race against ourselves in that respect, not against other Christians. Second difference is that in the Greek games, there was one prize per race. But in the Christian race, so to speak, the prizes are endless. It's not as though if you win, I lose. Or that if you get the prize before I do, I have nothing waiting for me. Remember earlier in chapter 2, in this same letter in chapter 2, Paul said, I has not seen and ear has not heard and neither has man even imagined all that the Lord has prepared for those who love him. So don't be jealous of another Christian who happens to live a life of excellence. Rather, we should celebrate that accomplishment and we should emulate it. And we all have an opportunity to win our own prizes whatever that may be, whatever God's plan for us may be. And that's Paul's advice to the church. In verse 24, as we end, Paul says, run your Christian race with an eye toward winning, just like an athlete will discipline his or her body for days, weeks, months, years even, training in a physical sense so that they might compete well on that one day when they have the chance to run their race They exercise great self-discipline over that period of training. Likewise, as a Christian, we should be willing to endure great self-sacrifice, self-restraint over the course of a lifetime so that we might also win that prize that God has set in front of us. It's really a fool's bargain when you think about it. If you're willing to forego an eternal prize so that you can have some passing moment in which you can exercise liberty at the expense of the gospel. That's a foolish trade if we're willing to make it. Just to wrap up, he uses a couple of other analogies, one of boxing, of course, and again of running. He basically says, look, don't box aimlessly. Don't run without a direction. Choose everything you do with an eye toward how it affects the gospel. 
don't be disqualified from sharing in the rewards that might otherwise be ours for the sake of the gospel. We have to learn the lessons Paul gave us here, that the race is an opportunity to bring us reward. We must think strategically. We must be willing to be self-controlled in all things so that we might advance the purpose of the gospel. You want a lesson on liberty? That's the lesson on liberty. Use it wisely. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for three things this morning, Father, that come to my mind. Father, number one, I thank you for liberty, for the freedom that knows that we have been saved by grace through faith alone, and that our works are not a contributor to our salvation, but they are an opportunity for reward, that they give us a chance to honor you and to advance the gospel. We thank you, Father, for liberty. Secondly, Father, we thank you that the Spirit in us convicts us and directs us into love for others, that we might have an opportunity by the restriction of our liberty to show love, love that is in action and not in words alone. And then lastly, Father, we thank you for reward. We thank you that you love us so much that you not only came to die in our place and save us from our sin, but you went beyond that, Father. You have prepared a glorious inheritance for those who love you. And you are prepared to reward us beyond our wildest dreams, not because we deserve it, but because you're good and gracious. And you ask us only, Father, that we would do the very things you've prepared and laid out before us. That we would live with restraint and self-restraint, Father, and we would live with self-discipline so that you would be glorified and your work advanced through us. I thank you for those three things, Father. May they be on our mind throughout this year to come and in every day until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.